1 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah. The lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the confidence that you give us in your word, that we see you at work as we read this text. We see that you are sovereign, that you are with us in our fears, that you are with us in our repentance, and that you lead us to repentance. I pray now for me as I preach, I pray that you would bless the words that come out of my mouth. Please keep me from speaking anything that I've prepared that does not honor you. And Lord, please give me the words that are needed this morning and the strength to deliver them. I pray for our hearts that we would be receptive to your word this morning, that we would see what you would have us to see in the text, that you would grow our reverence for you, that you would grow our love for you and our confidence in you as our deliverer. Please be with us now during this sermon. In Christ I pray, amen. You may be seated. 
As we were every, every time I preach, I'm very sensitive to the order of service and the things that connect with the sermon. And this week was no exception. There was quite a bit that lined up really well. It's no surprise. The gospel is very consistent in Scripture. Uh, so it shouldn't surprise me, but yet it always amazes me how well the order of service really does line up with the text each week. Um, there were several things, but there was one thing I wanted to draw our attention to sort of as an introduction. At the end of the psalm we sang during the offering, it said, Referent worship, give the Lord. With your joy mix trembling fear. Honor him, his wrath to turn, lest you perish in your stride. For his anger soon may burn. Blessed are all who in him hide. I think that very well sums up the situation in the text this morning. Um, So we jumped into the middle of a narrative this morning. It was kind of um, abrupt for you. If you haven't been studying 1 Samuel, we just jumped into the middle of a narrative, and you may not know what's happening. So I want to take a moment to catch us up on the background here. This is um, first thing you need to know is that 1 Samuel takes place after the book of Judges. So chronologically speaking, you have Genesis, that period, you have Abraham through Joseph, and you have Moses and the Exodus. Then you have the period of the conquests with Joshua. Then after Joshua comes the book of Judges. And during the book of Judges, uh, the, the people of Israel are ruled by judges that the Lord uses to deliver the people and to bring somewhat of um, a structure to the people. Yet in Judges, we're also reminded that the people were doing what was right in their own mind. It sort of feels like the Wild West during this time. Um, Nonetheless, the Lord is using these judges. They function in a unique way. They are sort of a ruler over the people. They are governing the people. But they're also functioning like prophets and priests among the people. They have a, a really unique task. And Samuel is the last of those judges. Even though Samuel's not in the book of Judges, he is a judge over Israel. He's also a prophet over Israel. And so that's important for us to know as we read this text. And at the uh, three verses, three chapters prior to what we read, the people of Israel have lost the ark. What happened there was Samuel has just been established as a prophet. We're told that at the end of chapter 3. And the Philistines come up against the Israelites in chapter 4, and they lose. The Israelites lose against the Philistines. And they're frustrated. Why has the Lord let us lose? Let us take the ark to battle with us, and the ark will deliver us. And it's very intentional to mention that in the text, that they say that the ark may deliver us. Remember... Samuel had just been set up as a prophet over Israel in chapter 3. The people did not turn to Samuel. Actually, Samuel drops out of the narrative entirely. At the beginning of chapter 4, it says that Samuel's speaking to all of Israel. Then this event happens with the Philistines, and then they, they take the ark to battle. They wind up losing the ark in battle. Priests die in battle. Um, it's, it's a bad time for Israel. Uh, in fact... Uh, they, they say that the glory of the Lord has left us because they've lost the ark. Their priests are dead. Samuel's still alive, but he is forgotten. Samuel's not mentioned again until chapter 7, the, the verses that we just read. 
So the people have neglected to seek the Lord through Samuel in all of this. And so the verses that we read now, this is a great revival because now the people are turning once again to the prophet of the Lord. So that's something that we need to keep in mind this morning, that the people have in the past lacked reverence for the Lord. And as a consequence, they had a great defeat. But the Lord is not mocked in any of it. The Lord's ark is lost, but it was the Lord's will that the ark be taken by the Philistines. And we see that the Lord is sovereignly in control. As that ark is passed around from Philistine town to Philistine town, you see that the power of the Lord is on display town after town. They first set it up in the temple of Dagon. And what happens? Dagon keeps falling over and Dagon gets shattered. So we see that the Lord is the sovereign Lord and this idol is nothing. And then like nuclear waste now, the ark has passed from town to town. Nobody wants it. They said, get it out of here. We keep getting plagued. And eventually what happens is they, they come up with a plan to see if the Lord is really sovereign. They say, we'll put the ark on this cart. And if these calves end up taking the ark back to Beth Shemesh, well, it's not really back. It didn't even start there. But if, it, if these cattle will take it to Beth Shemesh, then we know that it is the Lord doing these things. But as, as you would expect, if these calves just wander off, then we know that it's just happenstance and it wasn't the Lord doing this. And then what happens, the, the calves make a beeline straight to Beth Shemesh. They go straight there like, like someone's whipping them. And it is the Lord prodding these calves to go straight to Beth Shemesh. And you would think this is the, the end. Right now we see the glory of the Lord return to Israel. And in a sense, we do, but we also see the Israelites still acting like the pagans. We, the, before they had taken the ark and treated it the way the pagans would have, as if it had power. And we see them acting like the Philistines now when the ark comes back. At first, it looks good. They offer up what, what has come to them. They even offer the calves that brought the ark, and they give an offering to the Lord. But not too long after that, we see that they lack reverence for the Lord, and they look into the ark, and then people die. And they are plagued the same way the Philistines had been plagued. And they react, even verbatim saying some of the same phrases that the Philistines said. And they do the same thing, and they treat it like toxic waste, and they pass it to the next town and say, maybe these people um, can deal with this problem and not us. And so that's what happens. They pass it to Kiriath-Jerim, where our text starts But something different happens here. There's a shift. Suddenly, there's reverence again in Israel. Suddenly, they receive the ark. And they don't treat it like it's nuclear waste. They treat it wholly. And they they put it in safekeeping. And they don't toy with it. And so we see a return to reverence there. So our passage reminds us that we are to seek the Lord in reverence. With an undivided heart. And then at the beginning of chapter 7, we see that the ark was there for some time. It says for 20 years. And during this time, the people are lamenting their sins. They are realizing the fallout of their sins. But it's one thing to realize the fallout of your sins. And it's another thing to repent of your sins. They're sorry they lost these battles. They're sorry that these men have died. They regret that their actions have caused this to happen, but they have not repented yet. And so Samuel preaches to the people a message of repentance. He says, 
If you're really going to seek the Lord with your whole heart, you've got to get rid of the idols. And it's at that moment we realize the Israelites have idols among them, just like all of the pagans. That's just yet another way. They are just like all of the nations around them. But we see that the people do repent. And so as we walk through the scriptures this morning, we're going to see that scripture guidance scripture guided repentance is what we need and that's what samuel does as he leads the people he leads them to repent in accordance with scripture we don't just need to be sorry for our sins we don't want to be sorry for the things that go wrong when we sin but we want to truly repent truly turn to the lord And we need atonement, and we need the prayers of an intercessor, just like they did. We need it in Christ, and we'll see that as we walk through the text. And we, like Israel, need deliverance from a Savior who lives forever. And we get that in Christ, and we'll see that as we walk through the text as well. So the Lord causes people to devote themselves to Him in reverent worship this morning. And the first point we want to see is that He calls us to be holy Devoted. It is easy for us to lose our reverence for the Lord. And it is so necessary that we need to be reminded to wholly devote ourselves to Him. So they're called to a radical repentance here. Put away all of the foreign gods that are among you, all of these gods, all of the Ashtaroth, all the, the, the Baals that they had. Action is required at this point. Have you ever got those emails that say action required and maybe, maybe you need to update a password, maybe you need to make a payment, and what do you do? You flag the email and you hope you don't forget. <laughs> but the, that message is there to tell you that this has to be done. If you don't do this, there's going to be a consequence, right? Action required. If you don't log into your Dropbox account, it will be deleted because you haven't logged into it in three years. <laughs> if you've gotten that email before, I have, and then I've had accounts deleted because I just didn't care. Action is required. And it is dire for them to comply. And so they get rid of the idols. And this same thing has happened in Israel before, by the way. Almost verbatim to what's said here, Jacob says the same thing to the people of Israel. Joshua says the same thing to the people of Israel. And now we have Samuel saying the same thing. You know what that tells us? It keeps happening. They keep bringing the idols in. And so repentance is an ongoing thing we have to keep returning to as God's people. We are not above idolatry. We keep letting it in. And that's what they keep doing. And these idols, by the way, these are sources of security for them. These are sources of identity, sources of pleasure. These, the, the Ashtaroth or the, the Baals, those are fertility and for the harvest. Those are their security. They cling to these idols because it might help them with their produce as they're, as they're farming. That's their hope. And then uh, it might help them have healthy babies, things that they are utterly dependent on something outside of themselves for. And so they are leaning on the idols for this instead of making the Lord their security, instead of trusting the Lord. But they're, they're more than that. They're also a sense of identity for them. The people around them, they lived and died by their idols. And they are bringing those same idols into their culture, and into their worship. And their sources of pleasure, 
the worship of these idols was a pleasurable worship. They got a lot of enjoyment out of it. And so this repentance that they're called to, it's costly. It's hard. This is hitting them across the board. It's not just taking a few statues and burning them or something like that. It's much more than that. It's a radical repentance to take their lifestyle and drastically reorient it around their creator. The Lord reorders our disordered affections in our repentance. As fallen people, we are inclined to worship everything but God. And in repentance, he is drawing us in back to our created purpose. And that's what that radical repentance is. It's turning back to worship as we should, which leads us to wholehearted worship. So we repent and we worship the one God. We repent from worshiping everything that's not God. And we worship the one true God. And that's what Samuel says. He says, if you're going to worship him with your whole hearts, well, you've got to get rid of everything that's not God. And you have to worship only God. He's the only proper aim for our worship. And he demands the whole heart. And he does this throughout Scripture. There are countless times in Deuteronomy or throughout the law where we're reminded that the Lord your God is one. Worship him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, all your might. And Jesus does the same thing. He reminds us of the law by summarizing it in that same exact way. And Jesus also says, if anyone won't take his cross and follow me, he's not worthy of me. He calls us to a life of radical sacrifice that we would be oriented around him. Those passages are hard for us to understand, too. When we come to those scriptures that say, if you, if you don't hate your father, or your, your mother, your brother, and your sister and follow me, we, we hear that and we think, does that mean I'm supposed to have animosity against my family? Not at all. What it's saying is, where is your heart? Is your heart with the Lord? Or is your heart everywhere else? Are your affections on this level, this, this plane of existence? Or is it above? Is it set on the things above? So if anyone won't take his cross and follow me, he is not worthy to be my disciple. That's what Jesus teaches us in Matthew And we see that obedience in the text is illustrated by complying. They get rid of the idols. They declare their dependence on on the Lord as they do that. And they confess their sins in the text. And we see see this expression of pouring out water. There's, There's purification happening here. We're admitting that we are filthy and our filth has no place in the worship of God. And so we see purification there and even atonement made by Samuel. And so the people are humbled before the Lord. And all of this takes place because the Lord is using a faithful shepherd. He's using Samuel. Samuel preaches that message of repentance. He says, this is how you do it. Do you want to worship the Lord? This is how. The Lord doesn't leave us to our devices. But instead, he has given us his word to to instruct us on how we are to worship him. How do we give all of our lives to the Lord? Well, we have quite a bit here to tell us how to do that. And it's not that complicated because it's actually quite repetitive. We're told to get rid of everything that's not of God and to reorient ourselves to God. And he shows us what's incongruent with his word constantly. And he writes it on the law, the law on our hearts, right? We are disordered from the fall. 
Everything about us is contrary to the, to the Lord. It's one thing to say repent. It's another thing to do it, right? Our heart doesn't want to do it. It's not our natural inclination. But the Lord has written his law on our heart. And he works through a faithful shepherd, right? Jesus, our faithful shepherd, works in us. Jesus is the faithful shepherd that is drawing us to the word of God, telling us to repent and to believe the gospel. We can easily drift into worldly applications of religion. That's what the Israelites have done. They took the ark, which the Lord had told them to build in the Exodus, the ark which contained the law of the Lord, yet they used it in an unlawful manner. They used it as if it were an idol, as if it were magical. We can so easily take our good religion and defile it. And use it in ways that the Lord has not commanded us to do it. That's what the people of Israel do. And it seems ridiculous when we see them do it. We say, of course, they should seek the Lord. But how easy is it for us to try to take the Lord's word and bend it to our will? We cannot force the Lord's hand. But we must seek his will. Seek his deliverance. And in the text, we see that they learn that they are dependent on the Lord. They learn a prayerful dependence in verses 7 through 11. We see as the Philistines respond to the people's gathering. So the people have gathered to repent, right? The enemy never misses an opportunity. The people are doing a good thing. They are gathering. They are worshiping the Lord. And what happens? This worship is interrupted by the Philistines gathering against them. They see that the people of Israel are gathered, and they take the opportunity to pounce. And Satan is no different. He'll take every opportunity to pounce. And in this case, the people realize their helplessness. And what do they do? They seek Samuel. They seek Samuel to pray for them. They say, Samuel, do not stop praying for us. Why is that? They know they're helpless. They know they can't deliver themselves. Have you ever suddenly realized that you were helpless? Were you driven to prayer when you knew there was nothing you could do about it? Sickness is the obvious illustration of this here. When we're sick and there's nothing we can do to fix it, or a loved one is sick, there's nothing we can do to fix it, what do we do? We pray and we ask others to pray. We ask, we we want to be put on prayer list, right? Even shy people that don't want any attention when the situation's desperate, They're a lot more willing to be put out there, right? They're a lot more willing to be put on a prayer list. And they're not too quick to want to be pulled off the prayer list either when the situation is still going on. And that's the situation here. They say, don't stop praying for us. We are desperate. The Philistines are coming, and we can't win this fight. We need the Lord. And if you'll remember, just before this, Samuel said in verse 5, I will pray to the Lord for you. And when he prayed for them, he had also said that the Lord would deliver them from the Philistines in verse 3. And so what the people are doing, they're coming to Samuel and they're saying, do what you promised to do. Pray for us. We want that promised deliverance that you told us about. And so they're pleading the promises. And when we pray to the Lord, we don't create something new. 
The Lord has already told us he's going to bless us. He has plans to bless his people, to take care of his people, to watch over his people. And we're simply asking him to do the thing he said he would do. We're saying, Lord, you've promised us in your word. Please do it. And that's a glory and an honor to the Lord when we pray his word to him. And we pray upon, pray pray with P-R-A-Y, pray upon his promises, pray upon his character. We are saying, Lord, I know your character. Please be the God that I know you are. Be faithful to your word. Watch over us. And in that way, we honor the Lord. And we show reverence to the Lord, saying, I am dependent on you, Lord. I may have forgotten my dependence on you, but I remember now. And I'm coming to you, Lord. And I'm dependent on your promises, Lord. Thank you for your promises. Please do not fail to do your promises, Lord. So scripture teaches us how to devote ourselves to the Lord, but it also teaches us how to pray to the Lord. Pray that he'll do what he said he will do. And in the text, we also see that there is faithful intercession for the people. They are dependent on, they come to Samuel. They say, pray pray for us. Don't stop praying for us. And Samuel makes intercession for the people by praying. And he makes intercession for the people by making atonement. He offers up a lamb. All of this is in line with scripture. All of this is in line with the law of the Lord. So the people are being reoriented in the law of the Lord. And that law of the Lord, that means of coming to the Lord, is fulfilled in Christ. That's something we need to see this morning, is that Jesus is the faithful intercessor. So as Samuel intercedes for the people in the text, Jesus intercedes for you now. And as they were dependent on Samuel to be faithful, and Samuel was faithful, we have a faithful intercessor. And we are told in Scripture that the prayers of the righteous are heard. How much more righteous is Christ? There's there's none more righteous than Christ. He is the one interceding for us. So we can come to our intercessor in confidence that what he says will happen. In confidence that what he prays to the Father will be heard. It will be done. And so we pray expecting answers. We pray bringing our needs to the Lord, knowing we have a great high priest who is always interceding for his people. And that's the testimony of Samuel's mother, by the way, in chapter 2. She's the song of Hannah. And uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, she says that the adversaries of the Lord will be broken into pieces. Against them, he will thunder in heaven. That's exactly what happened in our text. The adversary is broken into pieces by a thundering sound from the Lord. So exactly what Samuel's mother said right after she delivers him to be taken care of by the priests. And she is declaring the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord is faithful in exactly the same way that she said he was. And so the people are wondrously delivered by a divine interference. The Lord often makes it clear that he's the one at work by delivering us in ways that we're incapable of doing. In this case, the Lord sends out a great confusion to the Philistines. says that there's a thunder that just completely disrupts everything and they are confused and they they suffer defeat at the hand of the Lord and that the Lord blesses 
than the Israelites, and they they are victorious. But it's very clear that that victory is initiated by the Lord. It's empowered by the Lord. And so the Lord wants us to know that he's the one who delivers us. It's by his power. And he wants us to remember that. And so in this, if you know nothing else about this text, you probably are familiar at least with the, the term Ebenezer. We sing it in Come Thou Fountain of Every Blessing, right? We did, Christmas was last week, and Ebenezer came up in a different context, right? So the children, when they, when they sing that song, they may be thinking of Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> There's, some, there's another Ebenezer that predates Ebenezer Scrooge, and it's the one in our text this morning. So Samuel raises up an Ebenezer, and that is a stone of remembrance. It's a memorial to what has happened. It's a memorial to the Lord's work. And we, we have different stones of remembrances um, in, in our lives. Uh, a gravestone is a stone of remembrance where you inscribe the, the years of someone's life and maybe even a few Phrases that make you think of the person. It's a way of remembering that person. We memorialize them with a gravestone. This is a similar thing here where we have a stone set up to be a testimony. And it's not the testimony of the life of a person, though. It's a testimony of the deliverance of the Lord. And it's not just the single deliverance of the Lord. He says, up until now, the Lord has been with his people. He has constantly been with his people. That's interesting. In chapter 4, they name a child Ichabod, saying the glory has departed Israel. They felt like the Lord had left. We, we see a handful of priests die. The ark goes out. Looks like the Lord's leaving. His priesthood's dying off. The ark's gone. All is lost. But it wasn't lost. We see that the Lord was faithfully working through it all, even through their darkest times. Up until now, the Lord has been with us. So you have the graph of life, right? You have your, your peaks where you see the Lord's deliverance. Then you have your Ichabods when you think that the Lord has left you. And what this is teaching us is that up until now. So we think it's these mountaintops and these valleys, yet the Lord is steady working the whole time. And we sing that in Come Thou Fount. Hither by thy help I've I'm come. It's a little awkward wording when you try to say it, but uh, it comes out smoother when you sing it. But come thou fount reminds us of this. So when you sing come thou fount of every blessing, think about this. Think about the story here. Think about what's happening and think about how that applies, how the Lord has carried us. He has brought salvation to his people and he sustains his people. That's what we're saying. He has done a work already among his people. And there's also that not yet as well. He has also promised to keep us and sustain us to the end and bring us to a new creation where we enjoy the fullness of peace, the fullness of rest that we are intended to enjoy and glorify him forever and worship him properly forever. So there's this not yet aspect of the Ebenezer as well because it reminds us that we will safely arrive at home as we sing and come thou fount of every blessing as well. So he delivers us. He delivers us now. And he delivers us all the way to the end. And I, I think if we're observant, we have many opportunities to raise Ebenezers in our lives. We have these Ebenezer moments 
where the Lord has delivered us. And our faith seems crystal clear in those moments. And then time passes and it grays out and those memories become dull. And so one of the takeaways as we read this is we're encouraged to memorialize the work of the Lord. This doesn't mean that you live in the past and everything's about the glory days when the Lord was good and and all of these great things were happening. No, no, no. It's not for living in the past. But it's to help us to recall the work of the Lord. It's to strengthen us in the present. We remember the past to be strengthened and invigorated now. So we make note of those times when it's so obvious that the only way this could have happened was by the grace of the Lord. And we're so quick to forget those times. So we need to be intentional. And one last thing to note is the fullness of the deliverance here. Just as we see a picture of Christ in the faithfulness of Samuel to be a shepherd leading them and a faithful intercessor interceding for them. And Christ does both of those in a perfect and more full capacity, right? Well, the last thing that we see is that the people are fully delivered here, but it's only for a time. It says that the Lord was with them, that the Lord's hand was against the Philistines the entire life of Samuel. That the whole time that they were there, the Philistines still existed right on the border. It didn't mean there weren't skirmishes, there weren't problems. But what it meant was they weren't conquered by the Philistines during that time. How true is that for us? Death still exists, but death has lost its sting. So we live in a time now where we see that same effect, where we see the stayed hand of our enemy. The enemy is vanquished, right? The great enemy, the Philistines, are vanquished from the land. The great enemy, death, is vanquished from your life. Death's still right there on the border, but death has no sting. And all of the cities were restored in the text. All that had been lost was restored to the people, and there was peace in the land. And that's the case for us. We receive a great restoration in Christ. And all of this was to take place during the life of Samuel. And then after Samuel, well, things change. And that's the way it is in Judges. Every judge, you have a period of deliverance until the end of that judge. And it does that over and over and over again in Judges. And with Samuel, it's no different. The same exact pattern that shows the need of a judge who will live forever. That's Christ. He is our judge. He maintains the peace. He sustains the victory in a way that Samuel could not, in a way that Gideon, Samson, go through all the judges, Japheth, none of them could provide an eternal victory. Because they all died. And they were just a little picture, a little type of a fuller judge to come. And we serve a faithful judge. We serve a holy and gracious God. And he calls for our full devotion, so we come to him with our hearts fully devoted as he works and reorients our lives to worship him properly. And we prayerfully devote ourselves dependent on his mercy every day. And we do this as a people who have received already a wondrous deliverance. And anticipate a full, wondrous deliverance in the new creation 
May we always be receptive to that and reliant on the grace of the Lord as we worship him, as he created us to worship him. Let us be eager to repent and quick to pray, always remembering his faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for calling us to be your people. Thank you for setting us aside for your purposes, sanctifying us, sometimes through defeat, sanctifying us through means that are mysterious to us at the time. Father, may those defeats just bring us closer to you, that we would love you, that we would repent, that we would show our full dependence on you with our prayer life, that we would say, never stop praying for me, never stop interceding. I am constantly in your need. Father, help us to see the fullness of your wondrous deliverance for us, a deliverance that makes no sense except for an external force, our God, stepping into our lives and rescuing us. Lead us to a reverent worship in you. In Christ I pray. Amen.